Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back. Today, it is my pleasure to talk to Don Boudreau. Don is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a blogger at Cafe Hayek. This is Don's second time on this podcast. The first time, we talked about bad policies that people love, like the minimum wage, tariffs, anti-price gouging legislation. And for each of these policies, Don explained the unintended consequences that often achieve exactly the reverse of what they're supposed to do and what the people who push for them think that it will achieve. Today, we're going to talk about a similar thing. We're going to talk about antitrust legislation. This is the first episode of a two-part series. In this episode, we will look at what antitrust is, its history, impact, and unintended consequences. In the next episode with Jennifer Huddleston of American Action Forum, we're going to be talking about antitrust policies specifically applied to big tech. Before I start, Don, I want to ask you, what is the most important thing people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Or I guess, what is the second most important thing? Yeah, because I gave you, first of all, I'm really honored to be back, Juliet. Um, <laughs> and during our first podcast, I gave you my first answer. But I'm going to give you a sec- uh, another answer, which is almost as important, maybe as important as the first. And it ties in nicely with the first podcast we did several months ago and with the one that we're going to do today and the one you're going to do with Jennifer later. And and that is uh, beware of stated intentions. Uh, It's nothing is easier than to proclaim a good intention. Uh, As they say, talk is cheap. Oftentimes, people who state good intentions, in fact, have good intentions. So I'm not counseling that we all be super cynical, uh, but don't take it for granted that just because someone expresses a lovely intention that that person's true intentions really are as they are expressed. They might be different. And the second part of that is uh, intentions are not results. So even when intentions are good, again, as they often are, even when intentions are good, it does not follow that the results that will emerge from the actions taken on account of those intentions, will be what is intended by the people taking the actions. The world is full of unintended consequences. We talked about some of those in our first in our first podcast, and I know that you've talked about a lot of these things with with subsequent guests that you've you've had. Uh, and 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 I think it's really important that actually this is something that people of all ages should know. But I do think the younger you are, the more likely you are to to need this advice. And that is intentions are not results. Uh, They they are different things. Good intentions might bring about good results, but good intentions are not sufficient to bring about good results. The the constraints and the incentives that people operate in have to be aligned correctly in order to ensure that actions taken in accordance with good intentions 
in fact, will lead to good outcomes as opposed to some other undesirable outcomes. People like to believe and they like to trust. And I think that's, especially the younger you are, you're very, you're not disillusioned by the fact that you know that people lie or that consequences occur regardless of what you say. So I think that's a great response. I think that I need to be more aware of that in my own life and also everyone needs to be more aware of that. So thank you. So let's get right into it. I read in the Wall Street Journal the following, quote, lawmakers this week proposed breaking up big tech by reviving aggressive turn-of-the-last-century-style antitrust laws and enforcement measures, end quote. So what does the journal mean by turn-of-the-last-century-style antitrust laws? What is antitrust, and why do so many people think it's important? So antitrust is a rather old-fashioned name for what Europeans call competition policy, um, but neither name is, is, is very descriptive. So let's, uh, antitrust in the United States emerged in the late 19th century. Uh, at the federal level, it happened in 1890 in something called the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is still on the books and it is still the foundation of American antitrust uh, legislation. The, 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 the history is this. Uh, until the, just after the Civil War, the United States was largely a series of local economies. You know, there were, there were no railroads, certainly no transcontinental railroads. Uh, communication was poor because telegraph didn't arrive until the 18, 1850s. Telephone wasn't going to arrive until the late 1870s and, and early 1880s. Um, and so they, starting in the decades immediately following the U.S. Civil War, the, the U.S. economy underwent a massive uh, and, and I think for the good, transformation. It became for the first time a truly national uh, 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 integrated economy because of the spread of the railroad, because first of the, the, the increased communication ability due to the telegraph and then later the telephone. Uh, and you had all these technological advances happening that for the first time allowed people in one part of the country to compete effectively against people in, in another part of the country. And this, these changes in, so we're talking about 140 years ago, uh, and, and changes that, 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 that were probably, not probably, I think definitely more jarring than were changes uh, in, in our lifetime created by the internet. Uh, the, 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 the economy became wholly different. It went from being agricultural to industrial, now it's becoming service oriented. And so in the late 19th century, uh, there arose very entrepreneurial firms that were able to take advantage of this new technology. Uh, now that the, the railroads and, and the telephone and telegraph existed, uh, a lot of products could be produced uh, in a, in, in, centrally rather than produced spread out uh, and hence produced uh, more efficiently. Uh, taking advantage of what economists call economies of scale, right? You produce a lot of stuff, and then the the cost of producing any one unit of that of that stuff is, is lower, and then you can ship it out to 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 different parts of the country. And so these technological changes uh, created large firms of a sort that never before existed, because no firm before could serve a large market. 
Uh, and it created unbelievably, for the time, huge personal fortunes. Um, and so some people got scared of that. I mean, the world looked a lot different. Um, but uh, it wasn't so much fear of people like John D. Rockefeller, who founded Standard Oil in, in 1870, and uh, Gustavus Swift, who founded uh, uh, centralized uh, meat slaughtering in the 18, late 1870s. It wasn't so much uh, fear of these people as it was despair by a lot of, of older producers at, at being outcompeted. And surprisingly, one of the major players in, in this history is this man I just mentioned, Gustavus Swift. Um, he, he was a butcher. He was born in Boston of German parents. And he, he moved to Chicago with the idea. He didn't know it would work. But he moved to Chicago with the idea of starting a, a, a plant in Chicago where beef and, and pork, but mostly beef, would be slaughtered in a central location and then put on refrigerated railroad cars and shipped out across the country. Uh, he, he chose Chicago because Chicago was a rail hub. Uh, he had all these rail lines emanating out from Chicago to Washington, to New York, to Atlanta, to New Orleans. And uh, so he was taking a gamble. He had no idea it would work. He, he, he invested part of his personal, at the time, modest wealth in trying to develop a refrigerated railroad car. If you're going to ship slaughtered meat, it's got to be refrigerated to keep the bacteria from destroying the meat. And he succeeded. And it was wildly successful. So the first shipment of slaughtered meat went from Chicago to Boston in November of 1879. Six years later, uh, this, meth this method of slaughtering and distributing meat had become quite commonplace, and it caused the price of fresh meat as opposed to salted meat, and canned meat. It caused the price of fresh meat to fall by about 30%. For the first time, many Americans... Uh, uh, who could afford to eat meat only on special occasions, where it was, it, was, it was a luxury, now could afford to eat meat on a routine, regular, daily basis. But what this did is it upended the old-fashioned butchers who now could not compete with the lower-priced, and by the way, much better meat coming in from Chicago. So th th that's, that's sort of a, a long-winded introduction to, to say that what happened in the late 19th century is that technology allowed the growth of very large firms that produced with incredible efficiency. These firms expanded output. They pushed prices down. Consumers were definitely benefited, uh, but many producers were damaged. The, the older producers were, were harmed, but that's what economic competition is supposed to do. It's supposed to weed out less efficient producers in favor of more efficient and, and newer producers. The economist Joseph Schumpeter called this the process of creative destruction. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful term. Um, and, and if you're one of these butchers, you don't like this. So, so you want to end it. And so you can point to these big firms and look, that firm is big. It kind of looks like a monopoly because in a lot of people's heads, bigness seems to be the same thing as, as monopoly. And if you look at, which I've done, not just me, but a handful of other people, uh, uh, if you look at the history of antitrust legislation in the United States, what you find is that it was not meant to protect consumers from monopoly prices. There is no evidence that there were monopoly prices 
at that time in American history. The prices that was ch- that were charged by all these firms that were accused of being monopolies, the prices charged by these firms were all falling dramatically, uh, and the outputs were increasing dramatically. That's the opposite of what true monopolists do. This is what happens when, they co- when, when industries become more competitive. Antitrust was a clever, and I say that as an insult, it was a clever attempt by special interest producer groups to stop or at least stymie this kind of competition that was put forth by these these new style entrepreneurs taking advantage of the new technologies that arose right after the Civil War. So this kind of leads me right into what I'm about to say, what I'm about to ask. Um, So you're talking about like the beginning of that time, the beginning when there's like Rockefeller and what papers used to call, quote, robber barons, the people that became rich allegedly because of ruthless and immoral business practices. The argument that you mentioned that they used a lot back then and today, I should add, is that we need antitrust legislation to promote greater competition in the marketplace to protect consumers from monopoly power. So can you explain an economist's definition of competition and compare it with the definition of competition used by those who want to regulate the conduct and organization of corporations? Yeah, so so, so mo- in most people's minds, economic competition is a good thing uh, because, because you don't need an economics degree to understand that that if two companies are competing against each other for your your dollars, that uh, that competition is going to cause each of those companies to offer you a better deal. If one of those companies had a guaranteed market, if, if you were prohibited from spending, let's say you're shopping for a pair of jeans and there's only one company that has the legal right to sell jeans. Well, that company is not going to be very responsive to you. The company doesn't have to worry so much about the quality of what it offers to you. It can, it can charge you high prices because it knows you have no other alternatives. Introduce another competitor and suddenly things change. Now that firm, uh, in order to get your dollars, now that firm has to provide you with an attractive pair of jeans and offer, to, offer that pair of jeans to you at an attractive price. So competition, everybody understands this, and it's a correct understanding. Competition gives incentives to suppliers, to producers, to to treat their consumers right. And by the way, it also gives incentives to firms to treat their workers right. If, 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 if there are many firms that can compete for workers, a firm that mis- mistreats its workers is soon going to find its workers leaving to, to take employment elsewhere. The late 19th century in America was an incredibly competitive time. And, and, and uh, uh, so what, what economists, what, what, what really good economists uh, meaning that competition is a process of rivalry among firms uh, to to maximize their profits, to, to achieve profits as high as possible by satisfying consumers. And as long as consumers have options, as long as entrepreneurs and firms are free to enter and exit markets according to how well or poorly they perform, then consumers have maximum possible options to spend their money. And that's going to compel firms to, to treat consumers to treat consumers well, uh, and so that's the con- that, that I call it. Not just, it's not my name, but it's, it's called the competitive market process. Uh, so if, if if today some firm is is has no direct competitors and it's charging prices that are too high, uh, 
that's 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 a that's a lure. That's like catnip for other entrepreneurs to come in and 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 compete with that firm. Uh, and and that's what we see happening over and over again in economic history. That's what was happening in the late 19th century. But if you define competition wrongly, then then you then well you get things wrong. Um, competition is not uh, uh, determined solely by uh, whether or not firms are big or small. You can have highly competitive markets when, when, when firms are, are, are very big. Uh, you can have uh, monopoly markets when firms are, are very small. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, contrary to historical myth, did not have a monopoly. John D. Rockefeller, uh, at one point, sold about 98% of refined kerosene in the United States. This was in the 18 18- in the 1890s. And people will say, oh, John D. Rockefeller controlled 98% of the market. That's completely wrong. He didn't control 98% of the market. Consumers were free to buy their kerosene from other oil producers. There always were other oil producers. John D. Rockefeller had such a large market share because he was relentless at keeping his costs low and hence his prices low and his price and his and the quality of his products really, really high. Fun fact. Uh, as everyone knows, John D. Rockefeller's firm was called Standard Oil. Sounds like kind of a boring name, right? Standard Oil. But at the time, it wasn't boring. One of the things Rockefeller um, pioneered was kerosene was the main product back then in the late 19th century that, that was refined from crude oil. John D. Rockefeller pioneered making the quality of his kerosene standard. So people knew what they were getting, right? When, 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 when you put a certain amount of kerosene into your lamp, you get a certain amount of firepower as opposed to it being random. And so John E. Rockefeller standardized uh, the quality of kerosene. It was called standard oil. That was something that was valuable to consumers. He was a pioneer in doing that. No other firm did it uh, right away. And so John D. Rockefeller, he's a great hero of mine. Uh, he, was, he was relentlessly... Competitive, you know the 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 biographer Ron Ron Chernow wrote uh, wrote Titan, which is a biography of of Rockefeller, uh, came out more than twenty years ago, and it, I, it's a great biography. But it's curious, Chernow, uh, uh, he, he in writing it, he was he was he expressed his mystification. He said, you know, you know, everybody loved Rockefeller, even his even his workers loved him, consumers loved him. Uh, it's odd that the only people who didn't who didn't love him were his competitors. I, I'm not quoting directly. I'm, I'm, para, I'm paraphrasing. But that's what economic competition is supposed to. Economic competition is supposed to make life difficult for firms uh, in order to make life better for consumers. And that's what we saw happening in the late 19th century. And, 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 but, but again, these older line producers, these smaller butchers, small cattlemen, uh, cattle raisers who, who lost their markets, to, for, to the small because the butchers lost the local butchers lost their markets so small cattle raisers lost their markets uh, and they rightly they correctly blamed um, Gustavus Swift and, and later Philip Armour and the other uh, meat uh, they were called meat packers in Chicago uh, uh, for taking away their market and and the the goal of of antitrust as I said earlier was not to make the economy more competitive. The economy is already highly competitive. It, you can find it in the data. The prices were falling. Quality was, was, was improving. Outputs were, uh, were, were, were increasing. Uh, the goal of antitrust was to stymie this competition, to make it more difficult for firms to grow large, to give the government power to shut down 
big firms, to stop firms from merging, to stop firms from growing uh, in the same way that that Standard Oil and the Chicago Meatpackers grew. And these firms, by the way, they also experimented with a number of different uh, business practices, with different kinds of contracts, with different kinds of pricing policies, marketing policies. And this is all very healthy because we don't know the best way to alert consumers about the, you know, the, the, the new products that are produced. We don't know the best and most efficient way of getting uh, 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 freshly slaughtered meat to, to market that's 100 miles or 1,000 miles away. And so these business people kept experimenting with these different ways of doing it. And, and these experiments looked very different. Again, until, until you know, r- roughly the beginning of the third quarter of the 19th century, um, uh, economic change was much slower than it, be- than it became starting in the 1870s and onward. And so business practices that you look, most business practices were familiar, the same business practices that you notice today, you remember from five years ago, and your father remembered from from 50 years ago. And suddenly all that changes, all this great experimentation, entrepreneurial experimentation. Uh, But things that are unfamiliar, of course, are scary to a lot of people. And it's very easy to demonize these unfamiliar business practices and to say, oh, look, you know, this is, uh, this person is using a particular kind of, 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 of contracting with suppliers, and that's, that's suspicious. That's, that's likely to bring about harm. We should have the government empowered to, to, to prevent that. Let me, let me just say one more thing before I, I shut up my rambling and let you ask the next, the next, the next question. Um, uh, I just want to emphasize that the economic historians, Bob Higgs, uh, Tom DiLorenzo, uh, Uh, Gary Leibcap, Tom Hazlett, who you've had on this program, have gone back and actually looked at, and I've done it myself, gone back and looked at the performance of the American economy in the late 19th century. It was an incredibly competitive time. There is no evidence that monopoly power was uh, on the loose. There, There was no monopoly power that the Sherman Act or any other antitrust act back then could possibly have been intended to combat because it didn't exist. It was just said to combat monopoly because that was an easier way to sell it to the general public. Well, so I was just thinking, I took an IB business class last year, so sometimes I consider myself an expert, but I'm definitely not. It sounds like they're just good businessmen, not that they're ruthless or immoral or that they are doing sneaky things. It just sounds like normal things you do to try to advance your business. And I don't know. I appreciate that. And it's also kind of funny how the only people who don't like Rockefeller, who don't like these people, are competition and people today looking back on it. Yes. They didn't even weren't their consumers. How would they know? If the consumers loved him, then doesn't that mean he did a good job? Isn't that the point of buying something from someone you want to be satisfied by what they provide you with for what you're paying them for? It's a little bit frustrating. Yeah, no, it, it, it's exactly right. And and look, back then, just as today, uh, uh, there were dishonest business people. They had, there were crony capitalists. Jay Gould, for example, is a crony capitalist. There were a lot fewer crony capitalists back then, by the way, because the government was back then was a lot less involved in the economy uh, than it is today. And so the opportunities to be cronyist back then 
uh, were were less than they are today. But of course, they were dishonest businessmen. Some businessmen were better than others. Uh, but but Rockefeller, Swift, uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, uh, 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 James Buchanan Duke, who founded Amer- the American Tobacco Company, uh, the, the 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 Gail Borden of of, of who founded you know Borden Milk Company was now. Borden sells milk and Elsie the cow. Um, all of these people were incredibly entrepreneurial and they took advantage of these new opportunities that did not exist before. They, but, but, but historians, some of them know economics, but too many historians don't know economics well enough. And so when they look at the record, what they see is that John D. Rockefeller made a lot of money. They see that John D. Rockefeller, I'm using him as an example, but it's to be said for many of these other people. John D. Rockefeller had a large had a large market share. John D. Rockefeller uh, drove a lot of his rivals out of business. Uh, uh, therefore, they conclude, John D. Rockefeller must have been up to no good. And so we tell, and 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 the phrase, of course, robber barons did not, does not help. Uh, it's not a it's not a term of affection. It's a term of opprobrium. Um, but but look at the record of. I challenge your 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 listeners to actually read. The, the the history by good historians of of businesses back then, and what you'll find is that uh, these business people, what call them ruthless if you will, are, while ruthless in dealing with their competitors, um, they made life really really much better year after year for consumers. And by the way, ruth ruth even the ruthless is the wrong word to say if someone's ruthless against the competitor. All that means is that that person is offering consumers a better deal. Uh, John D. Rockefeller couldn't, couldn't compel anyone to buy from him. The only reason he could get people to buy from him is by lowering his prices and offering higher quality. And of course, his competitors didn't like that because many of them could not match his lower prices or his higher quality. And so, yes, they were, they were put out of business by that. And, and because he was so good at it, uh, he was called ruthless. But but I, I, why call it ruthless? Why not call it? He was like especially wonderful at at helping at helping consumers. And his fortune, I am convinced, his fortune, every penny of it, uh, represents uh, 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 a multiple of social benefits that that man bestowed upon upon humanity uh, back during the time when he was operating Standard Oil. We've talked a lot about the start of antitrust legislation and how it was used during that time, but it's still very much happening all the time today. Um, There are many cases of large companies butting heads with the government on antitrust laws. These cases have involved everything from Rockefeller and Standard Oil to Microsoft, AT&T, I know you've written a lot of stand- about Standard Oil, and we've talked a lot about it. But what is the actual record of this and other antitrust efforts, especially today? That's a great. That's a great question. So, so again, so antitrust began at the national level, began at the state level in the U.S. in 1889, began at the national level in 1890, and like most things, you know, that it, it, it's it's waxed and waned in its you know in, in its in its use, uh, depending on who's in who's in office, depending upon the. The, the mood of the of the time, um, and and uh, uh, what you see when you look at the actual application of antitrust through history is that it has almost all there are exceptions, but 
overwhelmingly antitrust in the United States has overwhelmingly been used just as its designers intended it to be used. It has been used to protect politically powerful firms, politically powerful producers from the competition of less politically powerful producers. Look at a lot of the famous antitrust cases. These won't mean anything to your readers, but cases like the Alcoa case of 1945, the Brown Shoe case of 1962, the uh, the Vons Grocery case of 1966. Look at most of these cases. And all of these are decisions rendered under the Sherman Act or various other federal antitrust statutes, the Robinson-Patman Act. Uh, The overwhelming uh, application of antitrust has indeed been not to promote competition. It has been to stymie competition. The courts courts would look at some new business practice and say, well, I don't understand that business practice. It must be it must be monopoly. And firms would sue each other under antitrust statutes. And, and, the, and, and the firms that had the, the newer, less familiar, more daring and enterprising ways of doing business, they had a disadvantage in the courts. And so uh, the courts generally used antitrust to stymie competition. Uh, there was a famous book written by uh, the late Robert Bork in 1978 called The Antitrust Paradox. Uh, and and uh, so it was written just as we were approaching the 100th anniversary of the Sherman Act, which is, again, enacted in 1890. And uh, Robert Bork, who, who I think mistakenly believed that anti- the Sherman Act was meant to do good, Robert Bork says, we have a paradox here. The Sherman Act was meant to do good. It was meant to promote competition. But, oh, my gosh, if you look at the history of antitrust from the very beginning until now, until the mid-1970s when he wrote the book, he says it has been used in the opposite direction. In fact, it's been used to stymie competition rather than to promote competition. What's, what's wrong here? And, and I think Bork's book is brilliant because he does document very clearly how antitrust has been used to, to stymie competition. But, but he's wrong in this sense that actually anti, antitrust was in fact used as it was designed. It's not designed to promote competition. We, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement. We do not need antitrust legislation. We could get rid of that. I endorse getting rid of all antitrust legislation pronto, immediately. I would press a button and get rid of it. Market, <laughs> markets, markets, uh, as long as government does not uh, prevent uh, entry into markets by new entrepreneurs, which of course it should not do, uh, markets are abundantly competitive. They are amazingly, robustly competitive. Excess profits earned in markets, again, it's like catnip to, to, to a cat. Uh, they, the firms and entrepreneurs just cannot stay away from it. So the moment any firm starts to abuse its customers, not treat its customers as well as possible, what we see is other firms rushing in to take advantage of that lapse in, 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 in efficiency. Uh, and so there is, there is a, a ample evidence that antitrust has been used to stymie competition. There is zero evidence uh, 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 that, that I that I regard as 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 confident, and I'm not the only one who holds this opinion. There's zero evidence that antitrust has actually promoted competition in the economy. You can point to one or two isolated cases where you might say, "Well, okay, maybe in that in that instance it wasn't it wasn't bad," but overwhelmingly, antitrust has been a drag on competition, a, a dampener of competition, rather than. And, uh, uh, a piece of legislation that, uh, that promoted competition. Um, oh, it's just does not, it just doesn't sound good. And 
It that kind of when you said that that guy's book, he made the mistake of thinking that it was intended for a good purpose. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of what you said was something important that we should know that we don't is to beware of the consequences. And even if maybe one person who the competition, who the special interest group sold this idea of antitrust to, even if they thought it was a good idea, that it would have a good impact, you have to look at the consequences. You have to know. You have to pay attention to that. And I don't know. That's just kind of, I was like, ooh, connection. I I remember when I when I. I read Robert, it was Robert Bork, uh, who's most famous today because in 1987 he was nominated by Ronald Reagan to the Supreme Court, uh, and the Judiciary Committee, chaired by Joe, then Senator Joe Biden, was uh, very hostile to Bork, and so that's how Bork is mostly known today. But but to me, uh, I, I first encountered him with because I read this great book of his. It's still a very very good book. Very even though it's 42 years old, it's still actually very worthwhile. To read, and I remember reading it not long after it came out, and uh, so I read it probably in 1980. And I remember thinking, uh, when I finished the book, I remember thinking, "Well, gee, Professor Bork." At the time when he wrote it, he was a professor of law at Yale. I remember thinking, "Gee, Professor Bork, um, if antitrust has been so horribly misapplied for 90 years, right, why would you think it's going to get better?" In, in in the future, if if something if you can't get something right in almost a century, I think the best the best course is to get rid of it, to, to scrap it. <laughs> and uh, uh, but but Bork for some reason still had faith that antitrust could be could be reformed. I, I don't think it can be reformed. I think by its nature, it is a tool uh, meant to be used by powerful producer groups to protect themselves, to get government on their side, to protect themselves. From, from competition. I don't think the economy needs antitrust to remain competitive. In fact, I think antitrust is, is itself an obstacle to competition. On June 20th in 1890, Congressman William Mason said that, quote, trusts have made products cheaper, have reduced prices, but if the price of oil, for instance, were reduced to one cent a barrel, it would not right the wrong done to the people of this country by the, quote, trusts, which have destroyed legitimate competition and driven honest men from legitimate business enterprises, end quote. Yeah, it, that, seem, uh, go ahead. it just seems wrong. I can't even think about this <laughs> in the proper way. So can you kind of unpack what he's trying to say or what he thinks he's saying? You're quoting from the congressional record of the debates over the Sherman Act in, in 1890. Um, and uh, uh, he, he at least, William Mason, and he wasn't the only one, but he at least had the decency to be honest about what, what he was about. Uh, he admitted, at the time it was almost impossible not to admit because everybody knew it, who was alive in 1890. He admitted that the outputs sold by the so-called monopolists, the so-called robber barons, that these prices were falling fast. He admitted that the outputs were going up, were rising, all stuff that should not happen with a true monopoly. Uh, but he was, so he was complaining. He just had the decency to be honest that he was complaining uh, not about true monopoly. He was complaining that these firms are so competitive that they're making life difficult for these other producers who simply aren't efficient 
enough to compete with these new, with these new firms. Now we can all feel sorry for the local butcher uh, who can't compete with you know the the new style uh, uh, method of, of of buying meat when meat is now slaughtered centrally in Chicago and shipped on refrigerated railroad cars across the country. We can feel sorry for that butcher, but but to to say that um, Gustafa Swift, for example, uh, was not competitive is clearly wrong to say that John D. Rockefeller was not behaving competitively because he was lowering his prices uh, is, is clearly wrong. Yes, a consequence of this highly efficient, highly entrepreneurial and dynamic economic behavior was indeed to uh, ca- cause less efficient business people to go out of business and to find other lines of work. That's what competition is supposed to do. Um, and, 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 and so that state, that quotation that you read from Mason, I'm very glad you did. Uh, that is evidence as firm as evidence gets that the real, uh, point of the Sherman Act was not to promote what economists think of as competition and indeed what the ordinary person thinks of as competition. That the real purpose of the Sherman Act was to protect smaller, less efficient, but politically influential producers from the new kind of competition that was emerging as a result of these economic changes that were underway, underway back then. So Mason, at least, you know, at least he was honest enough to, to admit. Now, he, he, he was incorrect to, to, to describe what he was doing as, as promoting competition, uh, but he was honest at least enough to, to, to recognize that he was trying to protect not consumers, uh, he was trying to protect producers. And an economy that tries to protect producers at the expense of consumers is not an economy long destined to be prosperous. You want to get rid of antitrust completely. But a lot of people say that, I mean, it's a case like you need to protect consumers from monopolies, from stuff that from companies that can hurt consumers. Is it ever the case that that's possible, that a company can get so big that it conducts itself in a way that hurts consumers? It's hard to say in this complex world of ours that something is, is, not, is never possible. Uh, almost anything is possible. But the vast majority of things that are possible will never happen. It's possible I'll be killed right now by, a fly, by an elephant falling through my roof, right? It could be a flying <laughs> serpent, right? And it's possible, right? But it's, it's highly implausible. And I think that that scenario that you just sketched out is 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 highly implausible. You can tell a story. You can write down a theory on a nice piece of paper that shows that a company can get so big that consumers are hurt. We don't know of any instances in actual reality where that has happened. Uh, companies grow uh, in the market to the extent that they are able to please consumers. To the extent that they can't, they don't grow. If a company grows too big, uh, then what that means is uh, it, 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 its costs of, of, of that extra size are not covered by the prices that it's able to charge. And so the firm has an incentive to shrink back to the efficient size. If the firm for, for a moment does get very large and is able to jack prices up too high or restrict output too much, once again, that is a, an incredible lure to other entrepreneurs to step in and, 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 uh, uh, try to compete for those consumers' dollars. And that's what we see happening over and over and over again. I do not trust 
people who are elected to office, their specialty is getting elected to office. Their specialty is not evaluating the industrial landscape. I do not trust politicians. I do not trust uh, 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 government bureaucrats. I do not trust judges. I do not trust juries. I do not trust college professors, whether they're law professors or economics professors, to know how big particular firms should be. How big a particular firm should be can only be discovered by the actual competitive process. There's no way you can you can you can you can go to a court and say, Judge Jones, you who have a law degree, you who've spent your life studying law and writing legal cases, I want you to judge whether or not this firm is too big. How in the world would Judge Jones know that? I'm not being critical of Judge Jones. He, but we're asking Judge Jones to know something that he can't possibly know. We're asking antitrust asks judges and juries and, and antitrust bureaucrats to know stuff that they cannot possibly know. Um, and, and, and just because the intention is good, getting back to our initial opening, doesn't mean it's, it, it's, it's going to work. So, no, I think in practice, I don't at all worry about firms growing too large. If a firm grows large, my assumption in the market, my assumption is that that firm grows large because it's serving consumers especially well. And the moment it stops doing that, I have no reason to believe that some other firm won't come in and outcompete it or that firm itself will, will shrink of its own accord in order to, in order to survive. Antitrust is making a comeback today. Um, why? So antitrust, fortunately, uh, kind of disappeared. It didn't go. It went into a coma, uh, starting in the late seventies and through the mid nineteen eighties, and it really was pretty inactive until until very recently. It's now starting to come back. One reason I think is because people have forgotten the lessons that were learned in the in the middle part of the twentieth century. Uh, a lot of scholars in the middle part of the twentieth century would look at these antitrust decisions, some of which I referred to earlier, and they would say, "Whoa." That's a terrible decision. It's having the opposite consequences of what it's supposed to have. It's not promoting competition. It's, it's stifling competition. And so you had this huge outpouring of literature, of research, uh, starting in the 1950s and going through the early 1980s that, that, that exposed the, the, the downsides, the very, very large downsides of antitrust. And, of course, now this, this research is dated. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's 40, 50 years old in, in many cases, older than that in some cases. Um, and so you have a whole new generation of people who uh, are, are unfamiliar with the earlier history. And, but, but I think an even more important reason, Julia, is very much like what happened in the late 19th century. We have economic changes now that are happening with a special, with a special speed and bringing up new forms of, of, uh, economic activity that are radically unknown. Um, uh, so, you know, so the internet has just opened up a whole wor- different world of, of how to do things. Think, of, you know, the 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 the, you know, the 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 big tech. Right? None of these places actually charge money to users. I use Google for free every day. I'm sure you do too. I use yeah. Facebook for free every day. I'm sure you do too. Ditto with YouTube. Um, and and, uh, and and so these are radically new uh, economic products, and the way that they're distributed are, are radically new. And so this unfamiliarity of the products, this unfamiliarity of the the ways in which these products are distributed, combined with the fact that these uh, products are in fact disturbing the the 
calm and peace of some other more established producers. All of these things are giving rise to to uh, to to a call for more antitrust. My sense now, I have to study it more to be sure. My sense now is that the current uh, enthusiasm for antitrust is probably due more just to basic e- economic misunderstanding compared to in, in, in the past. People look at look at YouTube and, and look at Google and, and it, it just seems so unbelievably uh, 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 novel. Uh, and people worry about these these this novelty and this novelty scares them. And so they have this, I don't understand the leap, but they make the bizarre leap. Okay, I don't understand what Google's doing. I don't understand Google's pricing practices. I don't understand what effect this is having on the economy. My gosh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is so rich and Facebook is so large and Google is so dominant. It must be, there must be something wrong with that. And so let's ask government bureaucrats and courts to fix things, even if there was something wrong with Google and Facebook. And I, I have no reason to think that there is. But even if that was the case, it does not follow that, therefore, we should empower government to go in and meddle. Uh, what guarantee do we have that government's going to make things, make things better? Uh, so I, I, think, I think the novelty of the new economy, the, 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 the cyber economy, uh, is, is uh, uh, a, a very big factor in promoting the, the resurgence of antitrust. And, it, and that resurgence, if, if I'm not clear enough, that resurgence scares me. I think it's very frightening and very bad. I think you're right. It seems, I mean, I haven't looked into it that much, but from what I've seen today, especially compared to the reason why antitrust was even created in the first place, it seems more like today it's coming from people, from ordinary people and less from competition. Yeah. And Surely there is competition that is vouching for this and thinks it's a good idea, but it seems like your commonplace person just looks at Amazon and it's like, that's too big. That's scary. It's got to go bad. So I'm sorry. No, you go. I think a lot of it might be envy also. You know, people look at, you know, Mark Mark Zuckerberg's a a young guy uh, and he's worth you know, an amount of money that very few Americans can even get their heads around. Uh, and say, what did Mark Zuckerberg do? He creates Facebook. There must be something wrong with it. People, people are suspicious of very successful business people. They were suspicious of very successful business people 140 years ago. And that, and that continues today. And the suspicion gets translated into, wow, uh, he or she is really, really unusually rich. Uh, and he or she got unusually rich because of this business that, he or she owns. Something must be wrong. And of course, that doesn't follow at all. I have a final question for you, which I'm pretty sure is new since last time you were here, which is, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you have changed your mind about and why? So I know this question because I listen to your podcast. So I know you, you, <laughs> you, 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 you asked it to people. Uh, so actually, so very early on when I began to study economics as an undergraduate in college, I did think antitrust was probably a necessary thing because uh, that's the way it was taught. And, and, and even a lot of very free market oriented economists uh, had good things to say about antitrust. And my first exposure to it was, oh, well, you know, yeah, economic competition is good. And that, of course, tr- is true. Uh, and we have this thing called the Sherman Act in the United States 
And the Sherman Act has been used to keep the United States economy competitive. And very early on, for a couple of years, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I believe that. And then when I started looking into the history of it, then I, 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 radically, I radically changed my mind on that matter. Um, uh, so I, I, because we talked about antitrust, I will, I will leave it at that. I, I, I will say there are a lot of things that I once believed were true that I, I no longer believe uh, are true. And, and they're specific. But, but at the risk of sounding too dogmatic, I, I want to end by saying there's one thing that I learned very early on is true, and I haven't changed my mind on that. It's a very foundational thing. And, and, and that is uh, no one knows your business better than you know your business. No one can spend your money for you better than you can spend your money for you. And um, I always keep that that fact in my mind uh, it, it to help guide me when, whenever I'm I have some questions about some particular policy issue. That that is great. That's a good thing to keep in mind. And I mean, I try to remind people about it all the time, and I try to remind myself about it all the time. Thank you so much for being on this podcast again. I've learned so much, and I hope that my listeners learned a lot too. I think they definitely will. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure, Juliet.